National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns, is brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check out their website at cybersecuritysummit.org for a list of their upcoming webinar series. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, and you joined us for this edition of National Security This Week. We get together every Wednesday at 9 a.m. to discuss national security, and we're fortunate enough to be joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us learn more about national security challenges and opportunities. Every so often, we take a different path here on National Security This Week. Sometimes we don't cover a single issue, but rather we have a wide-ranging discussion on what is happening around the world. We're going to do just that today. My guest and I will cover a number of crises around the globe and, and hopefully explain to you why we think these crises matter for American national security interests. Our guest this morning is Professor Tony Lott from the Department of Political Science at St. Olaf College. Uh, professor Lott joined the department as an assistant professor of political science in 2005. He received his doctorate in international studies at the Graduate School of International Studies at the University of Denver in 2002. He's the author of Creating Insecurity, Realism, Constructivism, and U.S. Security Policy, and numerous articles in political science and law journals. His research interests include an exploration of norms and interests in international relations theory, cooperation in global environmental politics, and national and international security policy. Prior to his appointment at St. Olaf, Professor Lott taught at Portland State University, Hamlin University, and the University of Glasgow. Uh, Professor Tony Lott from the College of St. Olaf, welcome back to National Security This Week. John, it is great to be back. It's good to see you again, and I look forward to our conversation. Yeah, you were here about uh, six months ago, early September, roughly. That's, that's exactly uh, and, right. Yep. Uh, along with uh, Greg Marfleet. So yeah. we had a great uh, kind of a round-robin discussion on crises around the world. I'm looking forward to uh, furthering that conversation today. Uh, we have a lot to cover. I want to make sure we use our full hour today. Uh, let's start with the big one that I think is uh, front and center on uh, what's happening in the news today. It's a, it's a major crisis issue. That's the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, when you were here six months ago with Greg, we, Greg Marfleet, we did touch on the subject of Ukraine, talked about it for, I think, about 10, maybe 10, 15 minutes. Uh, but we should, I think, focus quite a bit here because we are now one year plus into this conflict. There are lots of things happening. Uh, President Biden was just in Ukraine uh, demonstrating American resolve in support of Ukraine's fight for their own inter territorial integrity uh, and uh, defense against the Russian invasion. Uh, what are you seeing transpire in, in this in this conflict situation right now? I mean, what's really got your attention lately? Well, yeah, it, it is the most important issue that we will cover this morning for sure. And it is the, still the greatest challenge to the post-World War II global order um, that we've seen um, since the end of that of that terrible global conflict. Yeah. I. Um, I think what I am seeing right now is a, a real pivotal moment, and I think it's good to acknowledge that we are here at the one-year anniversary, and, and we're recognizing that um, that the Ukrainians are still holding the, the line, literally, yeah. uh, in certain areas, but it's getting tough. And, and if you look at, at kind of what's on the horizon, um, there's going to be a, a, a real need to get new military equipment into Ukraine um, to so that the Ukrainians can defend what they have been able to achieve thus far, um, while also recognizing that Russia is probably on the verge of making some some real changes mm -hmm. in terms of how they're going to conduct the war. And there are potential allies um, waiting in the wings to supply them with, with more weapons than we've seen thus far. So, yeah. Is it becoming a proxy fight? I mean, is that what you see even, uh, like, say, if, I mean, China has been warned not by the United States, not to provide weapons to Russia. I think Xi Jinping in Beijing will make that decision on his own, whether or not that's in his interest. But are we, are we potentially seeing that this uh, this conflict on in Ukraine is a is a proxy fight between the West and China, <laughs> with 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 Ukraine and Russia being the the two proxies? That's you know that isn't that interesting to think about it that way, given all of the proxy wars that we saw occur during the Cold War, right? Right, and and the kind of the tradition of that in in great power politics throughout the twentieth century. I'm unsure. I'm unclear as to as to what role China wants to play in this. Yeah. I think that they're attempting to to walk an interesting line here. They know um, in the future where their their kind of economic home is going to be, and that's still in this 
globalizing world and, and the supply chains and, and having access to those sorts of things, while at the same time they're, they're pushing back and, and, and finding their own um, regional and global interests uh, threatened by, yeah. by U.S. issues as well. So it's, it's hard for me to tell if it's, a, if it's a proxy war between the two. What is interesting to me is the rhetoric in the, in the past month even. Right. So you mentioned Biden's trip to Ukraine, Poland, and the, the language that is coming out of the West right now, defending freedom. I, I, I read the – I wasn't able to listen to it, but I listened to the – or I read the Polish speech that he gave, and I was surprised by the number of references to freedom. Mm-hmm. Right? It, it, freedom just kept kind of flowing through that speech. Yeah. And alternatively, if you look at, at Putin's speech, which was given almost at the same time, right. um, the references to neo-Nazis and the, the front, right, and this, this kind of connection back to a nostalgic Soviet victory in World War II, um, it's almost like we're playing out some sort of weird trans-historical proxy war between the, the East and West um, at the at the end of World War Two, so it's it's an odd situation. Yeah. It, it's two incredibly different worldviews clashing on the front lines in Ukraine right now. It really is. Yeah. Yep. So we we, we hear in the news a little bit about <clears throat> this the spring offensives. Yep. That are getting started. Are, are you, have you been paying attention to that much? I have, and I think um, there's a there's a sense that that is going to happen, and it's going to happen. Soon. Um, I, I would guess that the Ukrainians are probably waiting a little bit longer, April, May. Um, yeah. But the Russians, and of course we have, to, we have to separate Russia in terms of the Russian military right. and then the Wagner Group, right? right which right. is something that we should probably discuss in more detail later. Yeah. But it's, it's hard to know if those two entities in, in, in Russia are on the same page with respect to when they want to start the spring offensive and what they're actually planning on achieving with a spring offensive. So Let's start maybe on the, on the Russian side of this sure. thing. Yeah. So y- y- you highlighted the fact that uh, we're not really sure who's all on, on which sh- playing from which sheet of music right now on That's the right. Russian side. That's right. Uh, uh, Putin replaced his military commander with one of his most trusted senior deputies uh, to yeah. take charge of the of the fight. Uh, he also has, you know, the, the guy that they refer to as the chef, uh, Progrosian, who's the head of the Wagner Group, a private military contractor, essentially in this case, uh, a, a true mercenary outfit. I, I, that's how I would frame those guys. Uh, in fact, I think the United States is declaring them a transnational organized criminal enterprise. That's exactly right. Point. Yep. So it's uh, everybody used to have to go directly through Putin to solve their differences. Well, this has exploded on the front pages of uh, what is the state-controlled press inside Russia about this uh, disagreements between Prigozhin heading the the mercenary outfit and and the military. I mean, absolutely blaming the military for all of these failures uh, so that nobody else takes the blame, including Putin. That is a really interesting dynamic that is starting on the political front inside Moscow. It is. And so there's this this kind of two-level game that's being played, the, the game inside Russia in terms of, of how the domestic politics on this particular issue is playing out. Yeah. And then, of course, the external dimension, what, what's then happening on the ground in Ukraine as a result of that. Yeah. And I honestly don't know what to make of <laughs> the internal issue. It surprises yeah. me, given yeah. Russia's um, propensity to create this this one man rule right. and this this desire by Putin to exploit that idea of the great czar and and to kind of control the issues the fact that we have this mercenary head and and you know there's a there's a way in which as we dig down into what Wagner is it's you're right it's hard to define exactly what it is. Is it a private military? Is it a mercenary group? Is it a terrorist group? Yeah. Um, and of course, the, the United States has, in 2017, put some, some treasury limits on, on what Wagner can do. But recently, it's been described as a transnational criminal organization. Yeah. This all suggests that there's some daylight between Putin's vision of what's going on in Russia yeah. and what Prigozhin thinks is going on in Russia. And I, um, for a long time, of course, Prigozhin attempted to limit his kind of public face mm-hmm. with respect to Wagner. He's no longer doing that. No. Um, not only is he no longer doing that, but he is um, 
the cheerleader now for the the Wagner group and clearly the leader and demonstrating the ineptitude of the Russian military in public. Yeah. Um, it's a. It seems to me it's a dangerous game for both of these men to be playing. I, I would agree. Uh, the interesting thing is, I think what what we saw throughout the last year was a failed Russian arms industry in designing and producing this. You know, the brand new combat vehicles, the tanks, the T fourteen Armata tank, and and others uh, that have. I mean, the entire Russian arms industry has performed so poorly against wep- uh, Western weapons. Uh, the Russian logistics, uh, you know, the supply chain, awful in supporting the troops forward. Uh, the conscript uh, military that they have has performed incredibly poorly against a well-trained set of, you know, dedicated set of, of volunteers in many regards on the, on the Ukrainian side. All these things have been laid bare. And Prigozhin is calling it out as a failure on the military's part rather than a failure on political leadership's part, which I find fascinating. Well, that, that's exactly <laughs> right, right? Isn't that amazing to be able to kind of um, walk the line there yeah, yeah and, and be able to do that? And, and if, if we were having this conversation a year ago, John, yeah. and contemplating the likelihood of a war in Ukraine and, and what— that would mean. Uh, to go back to your point about what has happened to the Russian military, I don't think anyone nope. would have been suggesting that the the Russian military would be attempting to get drones from Iran, right? And and sending in these these um, rail cars to North Korea uh, in suspect ways to suggest that maybe they're getting some military hardware out of out of North Korea. Yeah. Um, the thought that this was the state of the Russian military a year ago is, is yeah, striking. When, when you're importing weapons to use on the battlefield on your front lines, literally on your on your boundary line of your own country from sort of developing nations, I guess, That's or right. the global south, maybe we refer to it these yeah, days, yeah. Uh, buying back uh, weapons that you sold to them decades ago, right. or or Iran's d- newly developed uh, drones, yeah. uh, unmanned uh, aerial vehicles in this case, uh, that, that does not speak well of your own defense industry and your ability to produce weapons in a timely manner. No, it, it certainly does not. In the 21st century, right. when when it is claimed, or it is thought a year ago at least, yeah. that this is one of the, the, the better fighting forces in the world. So that's exactly right. Yeah. 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 Uh, let's, let's shift back over on the Ukrainian side. Uh, they've taken some significant casualties, nowhere near the casualties that the Russians have taken. I, I don't think Putin has any hesitation to just con- continue to pour men uh, into the fight uh, that has been a Russian— I, I guess uh, the way of war, going back to World War One, even uh, yes. they don't mind taking those casualties. Political leadership doesn't, but Ukraine can't afford to take that kind of those kind of casualties. Uh, the West has done, I think, a, a really good job of supplying them with uh, generally more tactical uh, capabilities. Not enough, I, I think. You and I would both agree on that. Uh, wh- where do we see the need on the Ukrainian side for weapon systems right now, from your understanding of the situation? Well, if I could go back just briefly to the point that you were raising about the the current approach that Russia is taking mm-hmm. um, and this almost World War One-like approach of, of sending waves of, of soldiers forward. We see that happening in, in the Bakhmut region mm-hmm. right now mm-hmm. um, where there's there's this, this attempt to just kind of think of the war as trench warfare and, yeah. and you send soldiers forward and you keep doing it wave after wave after wave. And, and while they're changing that a little bit, um, what we see is this, is this old style war happening on the ground with drones flying up above. Right. Right. It's an odd situation. And in response to that, so to get now back to your question, what's, what can the Ukrainians do to respond to that? They don't have the numbers on their side. Yeah. Uh, so what do they have? They have Western military intelligence in terms of, of spy planes and satellites and, and information and on the ground that, that is being fed to their military. So it makes them smarter on the ground in terms of, of what they know. They know the local area, yeah. right? Uh, even in the east where it's already been controlled by and, – and they've had to kind of push – pull back from, from, the, from their – 
sovereign border, right? Yeah. They still they know the area, um, so they've got the they've got an advantage in terms of intelligence. They need to maintain that, but you've got to expect that Russia every day is learning, and they're learning on the ground in real time. Both their soldiers are, and the Wagner Group is right, right? Um, and and then. They need weapons, right? They they're relying right now on um, Western systems. They're relying on British systems and some French systems and a lot of American hardware. Yeah, the Swedes are are contributing. The Germans, that's right. <laughs> the Poles, yeah. that's right. A lot of people are. A lot of different countries. The, yep. the NATO allies, EU members are are pouring that those weapon systems in. That's right. Uh, for our audience, you're listening to National Security this week here on KYMN Radio, and I'm your host John Olson. Our guest today is Professor Tony Lott from the Department of Political Science at St. Olaf, uh, Olaf College, and we're discussing current national security crises uh, around the world. We're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. You can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. Uh, around the same time that Biden visited Ukraine and then Poland, the Russians tested an ICBM, yeah. and it failed. That's right. I mean, it flat out failed. And then Putin pulled Russia out of the new START treaty. Uh, what, what do you make of these situations on the strategic deterrence front? And I ask that because there has been a lot of hand-wringing over the last year about, okay, if we push Putin into a corner, is he going to use nuclear weapons? You know, what? that's always the card that the Russians can play. They have the largest nuclear arsenal in the world. It's really the only thing that makes them uh, a power that we have to be concerned about is because they have so many nuclear weapons, because clearly their military is not performing well. Right. Uh, what do you make of this strategic deterrence situation? Well, many things. Uh, first, we're back to old Cold War signaling. We are. Right. And so I think in, in both of those cases, pulling out of New Start and testing an ICBM, uh, it's, it's unclear to me whether they knew that Biden was heading to uh, Ukraine before they had announced that they were going to do that to the United States. Yeah. Um, but either way, it was going to happen right at the roughly the one year anniversary of the of the beginning of the war. This is clearly a signal. Um, there had already been a discussion uh, in the West about which weapons systems were going to be headed to to Ukraine. Um, this was the, the decision to, or at least the acknowledgement of the of the test was going to come after Leopard 2 and, and all of that, the tanks. Mm -hmm. And and so this is clear signaling on on Putin's part to say, hey, remember, we've got this big, big arsenal of intercontinental ballistic missiles with nuclear warheads on them. Right? Yeah. Okay, so that is one thing that that we see, and pulling out of New Start, I think, is just another example of that of that Cold War signaling that that we saw throughout the the twentieth century. So I that is one issue that um, I hope the the West recognizes and and doesn't overreact to. Mm -hmm. I think on another level, what I see happening here is is that the um, the West is still trying to figure out exactly which weapon systems can be sent into Ukraine without creating a, a war that heads into Russia, yeah. right? The, the, the West was very strategic early on and throughout the, the, the first six, eight, nine months of the war to make sure that the weapon systems that they were sending were also a signal to Russia that they were going to assist the Ukrainians in defense of its territory, but they were also going to hold the line and not allow weapons to go into Ukraine that the Ukrainians could use to attack Russia yeah. deep into the heart of Russia, right? right? Um, and and that's for, for that reason, we see tanks going in, but not fighter jets right, right now. Right for now, for now, and no attackums yet. That's right, yeah. exactly. Yep. But this is all happening while the Ukrainians are beginning to test their own drones um, in in Russia. Right. right, and so this in is in Moscow. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. They, they actually flew one into Moscow. That's exactly right. Yep. <laughs> Talk about a, a one-year anniversary <laughs> right. signal right back. Yes. Yep. So it's a it's a dangerous and precarious game. I think we need to to recognize that in the West that that there's still um, a, some element of the Russian political elite that looks to that nuclear arsenal and says, "Hey, this is." This is what we've got in the back pocket, yeah. um, and be careful of that. And interestingly enough, uh, Russian military doctrine, actually, uh, it is acceptable to use uh, tactical nuclear weapons on the battlefield. That's part of their doctrine. Yep. 
That is a disconcerting thought process for, it, for, it, for me anyway. It is. Yep. And uh, frankly, were it not for the limited tactical success of Wagner, it's quite possible, I think, that we would have seen some tactical nuclear weapons in eastern Ukraine. And my concern is if, uh, you know, when the tanks start arriving in yep. Ukraine, the Western-made tanks, the challengers that the Brits want to offer, the, the Leopards that uh, some of the other, the German-made Leopard tanks, yep. uh, the M1 Abrams, ours probably aren't going to be there for a year. It's going to take a long time to get there. But if it gives them the capability, the Ukrainian military, uh, to launch a serious counteroffensive that cuts right through the Russian lines, uh, may, maybe drive on Mariupol to cut off most of those troops on the coast, uh, if we give them ATACMs and they start tr- striking targets in Crimea, uh, cut the bridge permanently so the Russians can't resupply except by sea. Uh, there, there are some. I mean, there are some really important things that could happen that could give victory to the Ukrainians, but it really pushes the Russians up against the wall. I hope your listeners <laughs> heard what you just said because I think that list that you just gave yeah. is really accurate, and I think that's exactly right. And that's why I'm, you know, as I as I watch the situation, I'm thinking the Ukrainian offensive is going to be later, um, and they're going to kind of watch what Russia is doing. And I, I have a feeling that one reason that they're doing that is because they're also considering what you just said about about the fact that that would really push Russia. Um, you know, one of the issues that we haven't talked about is the is the um, European contribution to the war effort yeah. and how slow that has been because of their domestic resources, right? They, they didn't have yeah. the stockpiles of the weapons that they should have had, and, and this was something that national security folks were talking about for right. 20, 30 years. Well, and on that point, yeah. Uh, if you look at where U.S. defense production has been for our own needs— and the fact that we have been incredibly generous in giving a lot of weapons to the Ukrainians. Yep. And now we recognize that if we are in a major conventional war, which we really haven't been in for an awfully long time, a modern war where you're expending ammunition much faster than everybody really contemplates, right. we are way behind the power curve in being prepared for a major theater war. That's exactly right. I mean, if you look at uh, just the the Javelin anti-tank uh, weapons that we gave to the Ukrainians, incredibly effective, something like a 93 to 95 percent kill ratio every time one is fired. Uh, those things were only being produced at about 1,800 a year. Uh, we've we're, It will take five years of continuous production at expanded rates to get back up to where our stockpile was before— the Russians invaded Ukraine. And that is, and you're right, that is one of the most effective weapons oh, unbelievable. that the Ukrainians can use right now, yeah. right? Um, so, yeah. And, and, and I'm thinking in a bigger picture here now because we, this whole war has laid bare the ineffective nature of Russian weapon systems. So it's created a global uh, race for the, uh, the new arms market. And one of the things that we have to think about here uh, as people who consider national security issues is the, the the potential for a China-Taiwan conflict. Taiwan has purchased stuff from us. Uh, it's five years behind in delivery because our production capacity can't keep up. And right now, the things we're giving to Ukraine, is that fight is considered more important than preparing Taiwan to defend themselves against China. <laughs> you are spot on on that one. No, I think that's exactly right. And I, it this is not only laying bare the um, the inefficiency and ineffectiveness of the Russian military and the weapons that they're using, but also the fact that the West was indeed living on a peace dividend dividend yeah. after after the Cold War. And um and that is now the the bills come and due. Yep. Let me ask you this. Uh, we also just had the Munich Security Conference. Uh I, I know that you, you did a little dive into what was going on at the conference, the agenda uh, what do you? What's your takeaway from that Munich Security Conference? That's one of the most important conferences that hap- happens every year. So this is one issue, John, where if you kind of triangulate um, using Biden's speech and the visit to Ukraine and Western resolve and this idea that the West is is defending the the global order, um, it's defending the idea of rule of law and sovereignty. And you take a look at Putin's speech, and the and the his the rhetoric of um, defending 
our traditions and defending against neo-Nazism and and that sort of thing. And then you add the third leg of this, which is all happening roughly at the same time, which is interesting, right? Um, And that's the Munich Security Conference. I was struck by a number of things. First, I was struck by the breadth of the issues that emerged in in Munich. If you if you have a chance, and if your listeners do, to just go through the agenda of the of the security conference, it is remarkable to note how little, relatively speaking, the issue of Ukraine actually mattered to the Munich Security Conference. And what we saw was a, a discussion of women's rights and global climate change and um, the, the problems with global trade right now and other environmental issues, uh, concerns about uh, the political stability of certain places in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, and this was – there were roundtables and keynote addresses that didn't even discuss Ukraine. So – I take a couple of things away from that. One is the the breadth of the bandwidth of the West, and and the way in which um, the while Russia is fixated, Putin is fixated, perhaps on on what's going on in Ukraine and defending um, Russian identity and and Russian interests and things like that. The West. Ukraine matters, but but the West is is thinking much more broadly about security and ought to be, right? Because mm-hmm. there are existential threats around the world that involve a much broader definition of security than, than the traditional war that we're talking about in Ukraine. Yeah. So I was struck by that. I really was. Um, the other thing that I was struck by with respect to um, Munich is this sense of um, urgency that certain – States, mostly in the global south, are um, raising with respect to the the environmental, the global climate change issues and the environment and, and the effects that that then has, the kind of knock-on effects with respect to migration mm-hmm. and um, the stability of their crops and, and things like that. So I, those two issues, the, the broad kind of bandwidth that the West has to discuss security and then the way in which the global south is frankly not concerned about Ukraine in in the way that that we see it in the BBC and and the New York Times and, and front and center there. Yeah, and, and I should highlight for our listeners that uh, when we talk about the term the global South, and we've had that discussions on this show about that in the past, that's that's kind of a new term that we're using in the in the political science and international relations world to talk about what we used to say was the third world or the developing world. It's called the global South. That's uh, right, and, and and I think it's. It's important, you know, what you brought up, these differences in perspective from the Munich Security uh, Conference. Uh, The Global South has real concerns right now about the impacts of climate change and just the ability to feed people in their countries, Uh, climate migration because of uh, the changing weather patterns and whatnot. These are serious national security issues for the United States to be thinking about right now. They really are. And and. NATO, yeah. right? I mean, that's the that's the other thing that that NATO has to also be concerned about these issues as well. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, Tony, we have to take just a, a short break, about forty five seconds uh, for a quick commercial. We re- we'll be right back. National Security This Week is sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. The Cybersecurity Summit brings together cyber experts from industry, academia, and all levels of government to explore challenges, solutions, and opportunities in the cyber arena. The three-day summit includes speakers, workshops, discussions about advancing a cyber career, and keynote addresses by top leaders from across the cyber community. Learn more at cybersecuritysummit.org. So we're back uh, on National Security This Week. Our, our guest is Professor Tony Lott from the College of St. Olaf, and we're talking about uh, a bunch of uh, crisis points around the world. Uh, Tony, I have one last issue that I want to bring up with you with regard to Russia uh, before we transition over to other topics. Uh, Dutch intelligence services, Dutch intelligence services, warned that the Dutch part of the North Sea is vulnerable to Russian espionage and sabotage activities. In other words, Royal Dutch Shell Oil, uh, Norway has huge interests in the North Sea and, and elsewhere with their with their oil reserves. Do you think that's a possibility that Russia could actually try to sabotage uh, the oil supply for Western Europe? Well, 
It's a difficult question, I know. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> here's here's why. I mean, I, I don't mean to just offer conjecture here, but it, but it has to be in some ways. But the, the, we we talked earlier in the in the first part of this conversation about the the weapon systems that Russia has right now, and mm-hmm. and the assets, the kind of the material assets that Russia has to to manage its its foreign and security policy concerns. They're not good. No. Right. And so what we see Russia using are uh, a, a set of um, kind of antiquated and sometimes non-state approaches to attempting to achieve its policy goals. Right. Using a mercenary group. This is something out of the Middle Ages. Yep. Right. And so a, a state like Russia having to rely on a, a mercenary group for its military objectives on the ground, that's a real issue. Uh, and. And the fact that they're having to to get drones from Iran, um, that's a real issue. So I would not – we know that, that Russia has been involved in the domestic politics of European states for some time. Yeah. Uh, and they have attempted to use all sorts of social media outlets to, to undermine democratic stability. It would not surprise me at all if uh, the the – the Kremlin decided that in order to achieve its goal, it's going to um, be involved in acts of sabotage. Yeah. Uh, what this says to me is that, uh, you know, one of the things that we were, I think, surprised in the first month or two of the Russia invasion of Ukraine is that in the national security arena, we've been talking a lot about Russians mastering this hybrid warfare approach. And we really didn't see it play out very well uh, along those lines. Uh, but if we, as the war has gone on now and we start to think about broader ways of approaching it and Russian doctrine in the hybrid warfare idea, moving this into economic warfare, which is what sabotage would basically do to the oil supplies, that that is potentially a part of, of Russian doctrine. I think that's right. And I think we saw that in the early months of the war <laughs> yeah. as well, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, the, the, uh, whoever, whoever it was that, that uh, punctured a big hole in the Nord Stream pipeline, that's right. that still hasn't been determined and officially announced yet. So I find that fascinating. I do, too. I, I think that's exactly right. <laughs> and along with that, the idea that, that Russia, I think, thought in terms of their strategic doctrine that they held enough power over the European states that the European states were, would not hold together and and be able to defend Ukraine like they have. And we have I, what, one of the things that struck me economically about this situation is how fast the European Union has been shifting away from Russian oil and gas, uh, and the fact that they've moved forward in their timeline the idea of replacing uh, all of the oil and gas in their pipelines with green hydrogen fuels. <laughs> that to me is one of the most interesting yeah. aspects of of European policy, yeah. and it reminds me. And I don't want to get too academic and nerdy here, but it reminds me of a conversation that was happening in the 1970s during the United States' uh, oil shocks and, and what the United States was going to do in response to OPEC. Mm-hmm. And there was this idea in in the in the foreign policy circles. This came out of um, Robert Cohen and Joseph Nye's work, distinguishing between sensitivity interdependence and vulnerability interdependence states that were sensitive to the world that they had created all the global trade routes and and opec and all of that um and then those states that were going to be vulnerable to that and the united states did something similar in the 1970s right Uh, opec raised prices and the united states started to drill more oil and and get more natural gas out of the and create all sorts of new insulation requirements for homes and put right. solar panels on the White House and did things like that. And in Europe, we saw what what I think Russia thought was a, a really vulnerable continent that was dependent upon Russian <laughs> oil and gas. Uh, and they were sensitive to it, but boy, could they switch that quickly and, and create a green future, which is remarkable. Yeah. Yeah. It bodes well for the future on these issues of climate change, right? It, it does. That's right. Yep. Uh, so, Professor Tony Lott, let me move us over to other crisis points in the world. And you were just talking about, uh, you know, OPEC, uh, which you know, at the time was prominently Middle East countries. Uh, so let's shift over to the Middle East, and I want to start with uh, the situation in Lebanon. I-, I shared with you a few days ago uh, a-, a write-up about uh, an analysis of the failing government in Lebanon and the situation faced by Lebanese citizens who, who at this point really can't afford to buy food, pay bills. I mean, it's, it's, the situation is getting really bad. It's like a crisis point. 
So then we take a look at sort of the politics and the situation in Lebanon, and there's this group called Hezbollah. <laughs> yeah, everybody knows who Hezbollah is. I mean, they're, they're an Iranian-backed uh, declared terrorist organization by the U.S. Department of State. Uh, heavily sponsored by Iran, assisted by Bashar al-Assad in Syria. In fact, they were ordered by uh, Iran to go into Syria to back Bashar al-Assad in the fight during the civil war, uh, which is still ongoing. They have a military wing. They have a political wing. They have sort of a social services wing uh, in in Hezbollah. So it's really interesting. The military wing, because they get training from the Iranians and they're armed by the Iranians, is actually as powerful, maybe more powerful than the Lebanese military if you can imagine that, right, for our listeners. Until now, I mean, Hezbollah has been really good about providing some good social services to Lebanese citizens. Uh, They meet the needs that the government has not been able to meet. They actually have uh, seats in the parliament. They've legitimately won seats in their parliament through elections. What are the possibilities of Hezbollah moving to secure a larger share of political control in Lebanon with this destabilization, this ineffectiveness of the government uh, because of these dire economic conditions. I mean, I think with Iran's backing, Hezbollah could could really do a lot to step in and expand these social services, especially with the outside aid coming in from Iran. How do you see this playing out? Yeah, this is a good set of questions there. And I think I'm I'm reminded of what Lebanon looked like in the 70s and 80s, right. and th- it, in some ways, the um, political spectrum and the demographic issues in Lebanon are still the same as they were then, um, with some caveats, and the caveats are important. One, Hezbollah is, I think, probably the most effective political governance agent in Lebanon today. Isn't that amazing? It, it really is, <laughs> right? And then two, they're also not powerful enough to be the government, right? So while they, they provide the best social services in terms of health care and education and, and the economic regions that, that they control, the regions that they control are the, are the best off economically, um, they're able to provide the stability that we would expect a state to provide, yeah. right? Um, but given the the Sunni, the Shia, the Christian, the Jews, the the, the way in which the the power sharing agreement in Lebanon works, um, and the 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 ways in which each of those groups have some power, I don't think Hezbollah has enough to take over government at this point. And I'm not sure Hezbollah wants to take right. over government right? <laughs> exactly. because they've got a, a good deal going um, in terms of what they are able to do yeah. right now. But I, I, I think you are right in the in the framing of your question, which is Hezbollah is going to have much more power in terms of the domestic political economic decisions in Lebanon than we've seen in the recent past. Yeah. And I would point to you know Afghanistan as an example where— uh, a designated terror group uh, takes power ag- again in this case, mm-hmm. uh, and you have all these uh, th- these jihadi fighters that were with the Taliban for the last twenty years or ten years or however long they've been with the group, who are now expected to sit down in cubicles in government and manage things like trash collection and the school systems, and they are miserable. These militants are. Uh, so I think Hezbollah, the fighters, the, the military wing recognizes that there is a lot of danger there. The political side of the group is probably like, boy, this would be interesting to have more say in governance. I think the social services uh, part of Hezbollah would would love the opportunity to serve more citizens. But overall, I'm I'm betting you are exactly right, that they don't want political power because then you have to govern. That's right. You really have to govern. (laughs) You have to deliver to the people. That's right. So it's going to be interesting to see how that one plays out. Uh, The Syrian Civil War... I mentioned that before. It continues on, sadly. Uh, The Islamic State is not dead. Uh, I mean, they've been knocked back uh, significantly. Inside Syria, you have uh, Kurdish forces, a Kurdish population. We refer to that as the Syrian uh, uh, Defense Forces. Uh, Currently, uh, they guard a pretty sizable uh, sort of an internment camp, is what I would call it, uh, filled with the wives, the widows, uh, and the children, uh, the or- in some cases orphans, of former Islamic State fighters uh, who died battling the U.S., the Syrian Defense Forces, and, and others uh, when we essentially defeated what was the Islamic State. One of those camps, one of those camps, 
holds about 60,000 people. That's three times the population of Northfield in one camp. Uh, And the Kurds are trying their best to guard those folks. The children in those camps have been continuously radicalized by their mothers as they've grown up because the the women, the wives, uh, were true believers in the Islamic State Caliphate. I mean, they they were actually yelling and screaming at their husbands to fight harder uh, during during those conflicts. So those the mothers and children, they are suffering significant deprivation because the international community has basically abandoned that situation. They're not really assisting the Kurds in any meaningful way in providing the kinds of basic services in those camps. Uh, interestingly enough, as the Kurds guard those camps, they're also coming under the attack of the Turks, who view all Kurds as terrorists. Uh, and this runs the risk of releasing tens of thousands of new Islamic State fighters back into the environment. What's your take on this situation? I mean, it is just a catastrophe waiting to happen. Is there going to be a new outbreak of Islamic State violence as as these kids reach maturity? I mean, 14, 15, 16 years old, uh, old enough to pick up a weapon, especially if they're broken out of those camps by Islamic State fighters that are still in the region. What's your prediction? Well, in order for me to answer this one, I actually need to add a few more variables yeah, that make it even more catastrophic and, and even more tragic. Please. Right. And, and one of those is the earthquake quakes that have occurred in the region, which have complicated further yeah. the U.N. effort and the global effort to assist in Syria where it can, which was already limited as a result of the war. Um, and the fact that that also challenges Turkey and create some insecurities there as well. So we have a, a natural disaster that is is not simply kind of an additional variable, but I think one that is now at the center of the tragedy that we're seeing play out. And then the other issue that you you mentioned um, in passing is is Iran and the role that Iran is going to play in in supporting the Syrian regime mm-hmm. uh, and the way in which it is going to perhaps ask Hezbollah to continue to to support that regime as well, as a result of the fact that Russia um, has not been able to concentrate on yeah. Syria because, of course, the issues in in Ukraine. So if, if you look at, at what's going on in Syria right now, this is this is a tragedy with so many kind of tentacles of of just human catastrophe attached to it and i this is tough i i don't know that the um that the rise of a new caliphate um and the and what we see occurring in these internment camps and, and you're right to call them that because this is stuff that is outside of international law. It's outside of the U.N. refugee effort. Mm-hmm. It's outside of even internally displaced people camps. Yeah, they're stateless people. That's right. Yep. yep. Yeah. So this is a this is a this is something that's kind of outside the bounds of what we would think of as the the structure of international relations. It's a mess. Um, I, the tragedy is so great there that the existential need to survive is probably um, more important than the rise of uh, of a political ideology. You know, one thing that we've seen in the last 20 years or so of, of terrorism studies is that t- terrorists are coming out of not the poor, but those who have something and know something and are connected to the, the Internet and the World Wide Web and everything else. And so um, they're able to actually spend time thinking about how to radicalize their their life and 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 the islamic state is a great example of that a lot of western fighters uh people coming in who had skills that's right Uh, and one of the great things one of the things they did really really well was to use social media to recruit more people to come and join the cause yep and and my understanding of of those camps is that they're basic and it's hard to even deliver the basic needs. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a terrible situation. Yep. Uh, for, our, for our audience, uh, you're listening to National Security This Week on KYMN Radio, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Professor Tony Lott from the Department of Political Science at the College of St. Olaf, and we're discussing current national security crisis points around the world. We're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit, and you can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. Uh, continuing on with the the Middle East, if we could, uh, Tony, there's been massive protests in both Israel 
uh, and Iran for very different reasons. Right. <laughs> Protests in Israel have been about the current efforts by a coalition government led by uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, which is perhaps the most conservative government that has ever led Israel, uh, to reform the Israeli court system which is really interesting uh, in this particular situation. And then protests in Iran started after a young Kurdish woman died in prison from injuries suffered at the hands of the Iranian uh, morality police uh, after she was arrested for failing to correctly wear the hijab. Uh, what, what do you make of these two situations? In some ways, I'm not sure how different they are at, at a more abstract level, John. And I, um, I, I, what I see is we have two examples here of how state actors are attempting to chip away at rule of law and create arbitrary decisions that um, that then, of course, once they play out in public, there's a backlash and, and, and people rise up. And, I, and in that sense, you see with, I think, what is not perhaps but is the most conservative government that we've seen in Israel, um, that that this attempt to kind of chip away at um, the judicial system and the independence of the judiciary, which has been a foundational element of the Israeli state, often pushing back against— A foundational element of all liberal democracies, well, frankly. That's right. Exactly. Yep. Yep. But pushing back against settlements in some ways and pushing back against the the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, um, in a number of different instances, they're— they're attempting to chip back at that, yeah. and and that's a big deal to the um, secular Israeli population. And the same thing, in some ways, was happening in in Iran, although it was connected to this much longer attempt to destroy rule of law, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but there is this attempt to minimize the rights of of women and and minorities in Iran, and and we see that happening and playing out in in a number of of democracies and non-democracies around the world right now, this, yeah. this attempt to kind of chip away at rule of law. Yeah. It's really concerning. What I find interesting about, uh, about the Iran situation is that in the middle of uh, all of the internal uh, protest uh, over the hijab and everything else, you, you have—the the economy there is, is in tatters. I mean, it's in really bad shape. It and, and it's mostly mismanagement from above rather than the fact that all of the you know, sanctions are on Iran, frankly. But one of the things that has come out of this is almost a counter-revolutionary call by a lot of the protest movement to end the religious leadership of Iran and move back maybe to, to a more secular kind of Iranian political leadership. And that is a non-starter <laughs> for everybody who is connected to the revolution and still believes in the revolution of 78, 79 time frame. I think that's exactly right. And again, I don't mean to constantly go back to the war in Ukraine, but Russia's attempt to create some sort of um, broader uh, uh, and much more friendly relationship with Iran yeah. uh, plays into this as well, right? So um, it's not simply that uh, the Iranians have, have found an opportunity to sell these unmanned drones to Russia for their war effort in Ukraine. But now there are thoughts that perhaps Russia is going to be able to trade more with Iran and, and that this will be kind of an outlet for Iran to get out of the economic troubles that they're in because you're right, their economy is in tatters. And so there's something happening in Iran right now and, and there's a bit of a fracture even within the government yeah. where you see the, the hardline conservative uh, attempt to maintain this this anti western pro islamic state and and then there are voices that are saying we might not want to tie our future to russia right. if you haven 't noticed the last year hasn 't gone well <laughs> right. um, and I wish that the u s and and Western allies might exploit that a little bit more because um, it 's unfortunate that Iran is in the position it is in vis a vis the west it, yeah. it it is a one of the things that always strikes me about kind of U.S.-Iranian relations is that we there are reform-minded people in political leadership positions in Iran. And when they, in the past, they have been in the presidency, which is not actually in charge of Iran because <laughs> the Ayatollah is in charge, right? But 
we have an opportunity to make inroads with Iran during those time frames, and we always the United States always seems to get shut down by our own very conservative side that just hates Iran and wants Iran to suffer and suffer and suffer. I think that goes back to the Iranian Revolution and and taking you know American hostages from the embassy, which I totally understand. But we live in a in a time where real world politics matters, geopolitics matters, and if we can if we can crack open that. Uh, that part of Iranian political leadership and move them in the direction of more of reforms that make them less of a pariah state, uh, better world player, ratchet back on their, uh, you know, the nefarious activities they have going on across the region. That would be good. That'd be in America's national security interest, I think. Yes, I completely agree. And I think you're exactly right. And I, and I look back to, you know, Iran 79 and um, Vietnam. Yeah. Right. We, we have, diplomatic relations with Vietnam. Yeah. We have economic ties with Vietnam. We have we may be going back into Cameron Bay in Vietnam <laughs> as a naval base. <laughs> That's exactly right. And, and here we are. Um, and we were at war yeah. in Vietnam, right? And, and what happened in Iran was the takeover of an embassy. And I agree. Breach of international law, breach of the diplomatic accords, all of that. But at some point, the U.S. domestic political situation has to come to grips with the fact that Iran could be a strategic ally. And in place of Iran, we have other states in the Middle East that are actually much more troublesome to have as allies. And have shown that all That's the way right. back to 9-11, right? That's exactly right. Yeah. And, and peeling that, you know, Iran away from a relationship with Russia would also be in our long-term national security Wouldn't interest. it? Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yep. And that's a, that's a low-hanging fruit in terms of U.S. strategic and Western strategic interests, and it's not being picked. Right? No. Yeah. And, and, and to further complicate this, uh, just a couple weeks ago now, uh, Iran uh, has announced that they've reached 84% uh, enrichment on, on some of their uh, stockpiles of uranium. Well, 90% is what you need for a nuclear weapon. And this has been the big fear that Benjamin Netanyahu has talked about for a long time now. Uh, and he, I think he and, and President Biden are absolutely in lockstep that uh, Iran is, cannot be allowed to get a nuclear weapon. Uh, we just came off a 10-day-long uh, detailed uh, military drill exercise called Intrepid Maven between the United States Marines and the Israeli military. Uh, and that was, I think, done principally to signal to Iran that the U.S. and Israel are absolutely— uh, in lockstep and prepared to carry out a military operation if necessary, if Iran moves in, in uh, to break out and create a, a nuclear weapon. Uh, so while all this other stuff is going on, <laughs> there's still this issue of strategic deterrence where we are very much aligned with our with our Israeli allies. And I think Iran hopefully recognizes that uh, they, they don't want to push that further. That's right. You know, and, and not to belabor the point that I've mentioned a couple of times, but the Cold War signaling again, yeah, right? That's right. And, and we see that with the Russian, or excuse me, the Iranian announcement that they've achieved 84%, right? Yeah. That's just, a, hey, I remember know. us, right? That's another signal <laughs> yeah. here. And yeah. then you're right, the, the, um, the joint military exercises signal right back. Yeah. yeah. I honestly can't imagine that the Iranians want to go to war with Israel. It would be bad, and it would not be in their interests. We similarly do not want Israel to start the fight with Iran. <laughs> that would also be not in our interest. That's correct. On both counts. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's right. So we just have a few minutes left. Uh, there's one other question that I want to bring up because I find it kind of fascinating. Uh, and this topic is Japan. Uh, so we're shifting over to the Western Pacific. Uh, Japan has sort of started to rethink their security portfolio vis-a-vis -a, -vis a rising and aggressive China. Uh, I saw. I think. Uh, I think I sent you an article uh, written by a, a Japanese uh, self-defense force officer talking about the idea of, I mean, openly discussing the idea of of deploying Japanese forces uh, to for island defense against uh, Chinese aggression in partnership with the United States and and allies. And the Japanese have been training with the U.S. Marines, the U.S. Navy, the Air Force, etc., in that region pretty aggressively of late, and even training with the South uh, Koreans. Which is even more surprising. Uh, right, considering right. all the hatreds that still are there from World War II. Exactly. I mean, it's, That's right. it's amazing. Yep. So I guess, I guess the question I want to bring up here is, uh, where, where do you see this going? I mean, this is a tectonic shift in Japan 
uh, with regard to their willingness to deploy military forces outside their nation. They've actually they're, they've changed their constitution. Uh, that was some, something Shinzo Abe was uh, in favor of when he was their prime minister. Uh, and it's not just peacekeeping. It's preparing for actual combat. What, what do you make of this? Well, the old realist in me um, <laughs> says about time because yeah. – and, and I, I say that um, kind of flippantly. But, but it, it, one would expect that states looking outward and seeing threats and the, the way in which China has step-by-step step moved and created islands and, and, and become more belligerent towards Taiwan. Um, if you look at, at the way in which Japan – sitting where it does, has had to imagine Chinese foreign and security threats, North Korean yeah. threats, right? Um, and at the same time, uh, deal with U.S. domestic politics and these concerns that are raised every once in a while by various groups that the United States is spending way too much in Japan and, and we ought to either pull back, pull out, or make them pay more, yeah. right? Uh, and so if you look at that and, and, and you're thinking like a state— well, it's about time that Japan have these conversations. Given Japanese history and given what happened in World War II and given the, the uh, issues in East Asia right now, yeah. it is still concerning, right? right? So the, the non-realist in me is thinking, and I'm not sure this is a good idea, um, but but the realist in me is 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 saying, yeah, of course Japan is going to do this, and I'm not surprised also that South Korea and Japan are engaged in a in a rapprochement with respect to the to their security futures. Right? It was I think bound to happen at a certain point, and these these things take a long time, but they do happen. Yeah, and and I would say that uh, if you look at the Japanese uh, self defense forces, they've they've had a resurgence in uh, advanced technology development uh, from a from a military capability standpoint. Um, and, and on this issue of you know kind of the holdover concerns about World War II, I'm going to circle back very quickly before we close out today sure. to, to Germany. Yep. Germany really really wrestled with the idea of giving their Leopard II main battle tanks to Ukraine. Because of what happened in World War II, they are very, very aware of that on a domestic political front inside Germany about what does that look like? Uh, what, what are the historical uh, repercussions of this? Uh, and does it play into the hands of Vladimir Putin and saying the neo-Nazis are attacking uh, Russia? So, you know, we are a long time past the end of World War II, and yet those events of that global war are still heavily impacting the thought processes of so many people around the world. I think that's exactly right, John. And it's um, it's playing out with a U.S. president who is a, a Cold War president, right? Yeah, I mean, this, yeah. in, this individual grew up in that time. Yeah. And, uh, and yep, I think that's exactly right. Yeah. And, and the Germans are domestically and internationally quite concerned about Amazingly enough, the biggest, uh, most powerful military in Europe now, I think, is Poland. Is Poland. That's exactly right. <laughs> Their military is twice as big as Germany. That's right. So, yep. Yep. Uh, Unfortunately, we are almost at the end of our hour. Uh, we have li literally two minutes left. Um, I want to give you the final word on the show because uh, I want to set you up for maybe six months from now coming back and having another one of these free-form discussions. Uh, what other crisis areas around the world are you looking at right now, maybe the top three other areas that uh, have your attention? Well, it's interesting that we didn't uh, discuss at all India today, yeah. and and that's not because it's not important. It's because there are so many other issues <laughs> right. going on in the world, right? Yeah. Um, but I think that uh, if we look at Indian foreign policy right now, talk about a, 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 t a time to be concerned about the direction of India and, and where they're going. Um, there, there are concerns, I think, with respect to their... Um, considerations and and um, cooperation with Russia, yep. and that is problematic. But I also think that there's some hesitancy with respect to how close they want to get to to Russia, yeah. um, and so I, that's to me an issue that six months from now I have a feeling we'll be talking about. Uh, and Sub-Saharan Africa mm -hmm. is an area that is too vast to talk about in, as, in terms of a region, but there were elections in Nigeria just now, and 
this is a really important state uh, in Western Africa. and Big, Biggest economy, I think, on the continent. On the continent, it? that's yeah. right. Yep, yep. And um, one of the biggest exporters of petroleum as right. well, right? Yeah. So uh, that state and the internal politics that are going to emerge out of that election, which is contested is is going to be an issue I, th- I think we'll still be talking about in six months actually i think that, yeah. that yeah. and, and sub-saharan sub-saharan africa frankly is uh, rife with influence by the wagner group that's right uh, sent from moscow to back got it. Uh, these sort of authoritarian governments that have arisen in uh, in africa right and your your <laughs> listeners can can look at at various states central african republic included yeah. um where the the government is there as a result of the backing that they have in some ways from wagner so yeah yeah. Well, we'll have to leave it there. Uh, Professor Tony Lott, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been a, a fun discussion, uh, e- e- even if it's about crises that are horrific. Uh, having the opportunity to have this give-and-take uh, discussion with you, it's, uh, it's always a great time. John, it's always nice to, to have a conversation with you. I, I appreciate it. Thank you. So thank you, Tony Lott, from the Department of Political Science at the College of St. Olaf here in Northfield, Minnesota. Uh, that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today here on KYMN Radio. I look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Thank you for listening to National Security This Week. Have a great finish to your week, everybody. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns with host John Olson. It's brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check their website, cybersecuritysummit.org, for a listing of their upcoming webinar series. (music) 